0: John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, it's Roy. Quick note about today's episode of Beyond the Scenes. The subject of suicide and suicide attempts are discussed briefly. So if you want to tiptoe away from this episode, you can. And uh, if you want to stay, let's get started. Hey, welcome to Beyond the Scenes, the podcast that goes a little deeper into segments and topics that originally aired on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Here's what this podcast is like. This podcast is like when you were a kid and the bell rang for recess and now you're in the courtyard drinking your juice box and you're playing Foursquare with your friend Aaron who you're convinced is going to be your most goodest best friend for the rest of your life. Then he moved away and he never told you goodbye. Still think about you, man. If you're out there, just just, just know I love you. I'm sorry, what were we talking about? Yeah, I'm Roy Wood Jr., and in honor of Veterans Day, we're talking about a CP Time segment that honored the contributions of the black soldier. Roll the clip. In World War I, the 369th Infantry Regiment fought so fiercely that the Germans called them the Harlem Hellfighters. And when a German says you know how to whoop ass... That means something. (laughs) The Great War also provided many black fighters with their first chance to travel abroad. And once in France, our brothers in arms found something they had never seen before, respectful white people. It was so enjoyable in Europe that a lot of black soldiers didn't come back, which I understand. I went to Belgium for two days, ended up staying the whole summer with Helga. Oh, she knew how to iron that Belgian waffle. Oh, my waffles. I was there for three months. Then my wife found out. I'm sorry, baby, please, please let me come home. Today I'm joined by the co-founder of the Black Veterans Project and former infantry combat medic and U.S. Army veteran, Richard Brookshire. Richard, how you doing? I'm
2: doing good, I'm really happy to be here, excited.
1: Well, good to have you here. I'll tell you my Veterans Day story about the parade in high school where I stepped in the horse turd. But first, let's welcome our second guest. (laughs) They're a professor of history at Dartmouth College and author of the new book, Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Matthew F. Delmont. Matthew, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here, right? Oh, well. A pleasure to have you all. And let's get into this discussion. You know, the contributions of veterans, I think, are often minimized and remixed in our society and done so even more for Black veterans. Matthew, I'd like to start with you. Your book is titled Half American. Talk to us a little bit about how you settled on the title of that book and what the experience was like for Black service members in the military during that time where, you know, The racism and segregation was just as entrenched within our armed forces as it was in just general American society.
3: So the title of the book, Half American, comes from a letter that a man named James Thompson wrote in December 1941, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Thompson writes a letter to the Pittsburgh Courier, which was the largest and most influential black newspaper at the time. What Thompson asks is, should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Is the America I know worth defending? What he's saying is he is a black American. He's thinking about what it means for him and other black Americans to get drafted into a military that is entirely racially segregated. The army is segregated. It only particularly allows black Americans to serve in supply and logistical roles. By and large, they're not allowed to participate in combat. In the Navy, uh, black Americans are only allowed to volunteer and be drafted into the Messman branch, where they essentially will wait on and serve white officers. And at the start of the war, black Americans aren't allowed in the Marine Corps at all. This is an affront to the patriotism and service of black Americans, that they they want to be able to do everything they can to help protect their country, to serve the United States at this time of war. But the military doesn't do what they can to acknowledge their service and to take advantage of the the skills that black Americans can bring to the military effort. Once those black troops get drafted into the military, what they find is that conditions on those bases are just as bad, if not worse, than they are in surrounding towns and cities in, in the country. Their stories abound of black troops being sent to these army camps in the South, and they're fearing for their lives. Uh, They get uh, attacked by townspeople. They get verbally abused and physically harassed by white officers. They're called racial epithets every day. Things get so bad that they're actually anxious and excited about the prospect of being able to deploy to battlefronts in Europe or the Pacific, because they think it's going to be safer there Hmm. than it is in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia.
1: And they didn't start letting black troops in until after the war started. You know how racist, you got to be? No, you can't die for America. We'll do it. All right, all right, we're getting our ass whooped. Come on over here, black folks. All right, we're going to go and let you in just a little. I'm not sure if that was the exact memo or how it was discussed, but it's definitely an interesting dichotomy in the sense that you want to have pride for something that is also, you want to have pride in a place that is also, you know, mistreating you. Richard, as a veteran, when you enlisted, how much was the thought of the inequities that still trouble America? How much did that play a role in you choosing to enlist or even being hesitant to enlist initially?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think like the first thing I can think of is I I joined shortly after Obama was elected. And so it was like this momentum. Like we have a black, you know, commander-in-chief, the first black president. So Maybe there was some naivete. I was also young and young people tend to join. You're talking about even in World War II, the predominant, like the, the majority of folks that were joining were like 19 and 20 and 21. These are young people. Right. So I think I was naive around the inequities. And my story kind of bears out kind of all of the lessons learned over the last decade uh, since I, I, I went to Afghanistan.
1: And talking with other black soldiers, was there any sense of. Community, or is it kind of every man for himself when you're dealing with inequities within the armed services?
2: I think it depends on where you end up getting stationed. Uh, when I was in training, I think that, you know, we kind of congregated based off of race. I just naturally folks kind of gravitated to the folks that they were kind of wanting to be around. And then I ended up being stationed at a small base in Germany, a former Nazi base, actually in bombholder Germany, Um, where it was Mm. predominantly white. I had only a few black soldiers that I could even uh, befriend, let alone kind of build community with. And that was actually probably the the beginning of the awakening, right? Because I was kind of thrust from going up I was a a, a student at Morehouse uh, about a year and a half before. And then suddenly I dropped out of Morehouse and found myself at the middle of Baumholder Germany around a bunch of Midwestern white boys. And it was just, it was different. I remember that first like six months (laughs) That first six months going into the going into work and like the kinds of conversations that these folks were like engaging in, like, you know, they was just kind of spewing the things that they were hearing on Fox News. It was happening back in 2010. Right. Uh, Right. Right. After Obama had got elected and all those things. So um, it was discouraging. I remember coming to work and kind of like just It was it was always kind of an awakening every single day with how ignorant folks could be, how prejudicial folks could be, how sexist and homophobic folk could be, um, let alone how racist folk could be. So after about about six months, I just I stopped engaging in the dialogue because it was exhausting and I had to prepare to go to war. Right. And with these same people. Right. So um, I felt like I was just kind of a losing battle to try to feel like I could change their minds or all they needed was one more conversation from me or one more, w- one more book to read or w- one more book recommendation to, you know, edify themselves. And, you know, these folks weren't really interested in, in learning.
1: How do you have like in upon enlisting, how do you possess a sense of pride in something that is not fixed within that organization? Like if we just go with the Harlem Hellfighters, right. All right. Harlem Hillfighters they go over to France during world war one. They whip a lot of ass, they get a lot of medals, and then they come home, and they can't even be in their own parade for the homecoming, to even celebrate that you made it back safely to America. And then you look at groups like the Tuskegee Airmen, who had a lot of their accomplishments overlooked. And it was a long time before we really, in my opinion, properly gave those brothers their flowers. So how much did you identify with the Black person's relationship with the military of the past and reconcile that with the present? And you know, and why are these Black service members, why are they so important to military history?
3: I think what's powerful about Black military service is that Black Americans have always been fighting two wars at the same time. They've been fighting for equality within the military, but they've also been trying to fight to make America actually live up to its ideals. I think that's true in World War One with the Harlem Hellfighters. It's true in World War II with Tuskegee Airmen and all of the more than million black Americans who served. And it's true after the military becomes desegregated, that even once the military desegregates in 1948 and you see some improvements, um, the kind of military that Richard was a part of still has racial discrimination as a, a key part of it, it is still facing a lot of the challenges with regards to racism uh, that are fully sort of meshed in the culture of the military. And so I think is powerful about the fact that black Americans have continued to serve the country is that they're, they're truly demanding that the country be a better version of itself. They, they are trying to articulate and trying to bring into, to into being a, a better version of the United States.
1: And Richard, same question to you. How did knowing those stories of the journey of black people through the military You know, how much did you feel a connection to that, you know, early on?
2: Um, I think that it really actually happened after I'd gotten out. Um, I came I I came back, um, finished my last three years in the military while I was kind of matriculating. The beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement was kind of proliferating in the country. Um, I was kind of struggling to reconcile my service. Um, I wasn't connected to a lot of vets. Right. Like even fewer vets <laughs> that serve now than they did back then. So there wasn't a lot of community to discourse with or engage with. And it really what was the impetus to my project was the desire to kind of better understand the inequities that were that. that so I'll, I'll start with, uh, you know, Unfortunately, I, I had a suicide attempt about a year after getting out of the military. Like I said, I was really, really struggling to reconcile my service and you know PTSD that I had, had and um, just didn't feel like I was getting the support that I needed. And when I was in the psych ward, I, we didn't have TVs, we didn't have any you know anything to engage. So I had pe- people bringing me books. And uh, I read a book called When Affirmative Action Was White, a, a book by Ira Katz-Nelson, um, a professor out of Columbia. And there are two chapters in it that focused on the GI Bill and essentially this is wide social welfare program right after World War II um, that enabled many people to get in, gain access to zero via back home loans. So the ability to buy a home for the first time, the ability to go to school. And you know, it was the first time that I really like sat with the history that black folk were mostly locked out of that. So shortly after getting out the psych ward, I, um, I went to an event cause I was unemployed and the event was for unemployed vets. And it just struck me that the majority of that room was black. And so for me, it was like, yo, there's this history that I just engaged with. That's very clear. I'm in the midst of this black lives matter movement. The ascension of Trump is happening, trying to figure out how I can be of utility and reconcile my service. And then I'm seeing like, you know, get to Googling for a couple of weeks, trying to do research and seeing that there's really no, this history isn't connected to the present day. And how can we be having a racial justice conversation um, as a country? And it seems not to be happening in this institution, which historically has always had a race problem. And then kind of talking about some of my experiences as well, I was beginning to connect the dots in like this invisible kind of issue of race still permeating in the military and wanting to do a project that would really kind of tie the historical thread for people and make things plain and simple. Um, And so that's what what we've really been trying to do for the last five years.
1: Let's talk a little bit about that for a second, because your time in the Army, you know, after that, you wrote a a New York Times article a couple of years ago entitled Mm -hmm. Serving in the Army as a Queer Black Man Opened My Eyes to Racism in America. Mm -hmm. Now, within your time enlisted, were you openly queer? And if not, what type of layers did that add? Mm. Uh, to being within the military,
2: I, I came out when I was sixteen, and I, and I and I think part of even my 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 experiences at Morehouse was trying to reconcile what that meant, right, to be a young black man and to be gay. Um, so I came in with a good sense of myself, and I think that's partly why I survived the military. Um, and then, but I had I came in at the height of don't ask, don't tell. I couldn't be out, uh, you know, in the military, and that was something that I was aware of going into it. Um, but it took about two years between training and that first year of being at my duty station, getting ready for war. And, you know, ultimately, you know, you can only hide so much. Right. And so I was, facing a lot of sexual harassment. A lot of folks, the kind of rumors were floating in the way in in which people were engaging with me. Um, And on top of, I think like some racist based actions and like just some, some things that a lot of black folk face when they're like, you know, significantly diminished or like uh, they're not, we're not, we're not mentored in the same ways. We're kind of set up for failure in a lot of ways. Um, So I definitely think like me, me being gay played a role Up until that point, but right before I went on deployment, I was like, "Yo, I might go to Afghanistan and die." So I'm not about to go there without folks, you know, the people that I'm working with directly, knowing that, you know, I'm I'm gay and I'm not something that I'm ashamed of. Uh, So I came out to to my to my direct unit, the the folks that I was working with, uh, specifically the the physicians, because I was a combat medic and my other medics, and they were largely supportive, right? But I was also just it just so happened that a policy had passed where they don't ask, don't tell was still in place, but it was under review. And so they weren't kicking anybody actively out. Right. And it's just that that window mm. of time. And then the policy actually changed on my birthday in Afghanistan about nine months into my deployment.
1: Did you here's here's a here's a here's a personal question, but I I feel compelled to ask it by dealing with discrimination from sexual orientation and then dealing with discrimination, well, sexual orientation rumors, and then dealing with racial discrimination, mm-hmm. you were combat medic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you regret signing up for the one MOS that requires you to maybe help somebody that might've been talking shit to you mm-hmm. the day before on base? Mm-hmm.
2: I never resented being a combat medic because I think I got to. Like you never had a moment
1: where you're like, these are the people I got to save if they get shot. No, nah, I mean, the,
2: I would say one of the most racist people that I engaged with was actually a physician that was in charge of all of us, <laughs> right? Oh, uh, Jesus. So, like at, you, you know, at,
1: some Tuskegee I, experiments. I, yeah.
2: I, I remember um, Martin Luther King Day, and I'm a Morehouse man, so Martin Luther King's on TV. I'm going to give him a shout out, and it was playing in the, in the in our aid station, and he was like, "Turn that troublemaker off," and he, and literally, like what he said, right? And he he said that uh, it was like something out of a movie. I was like, "What is wow. happening?" Because he started talking about how uh, Martin Luther came down there. And he was an older, older gentleman. Uh, came he came down to? I think he was from Alabama, um, and said came down and made all this trouble. And my mammy got all worked up. And he was talking. He basically had, he had a mammy. I never met someone who had one, um, but he Jesus had. Gracious. Yeah, it was just like something like that, right? But he, here's somebody in charge of like the career trajectory of these soldiers, let alone the kinds of engagements that we might have with soldiers of color, queer folks, whatever, uh, local Afghan populations and and what have you. Um, so yeah, that opened my eyes, but I never regretted being a combat medic. I, 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 at the end of the day, helping people is helping people. So. Okay.
1: Yeah. You ain't you ain't never seen somebody that was on the battlefield messed up and then you just walk up to talk that shit you was talking at the police. <laughs> uh,
2: never had the opportunity. Nah.
1: <laughs> nah. <laughs> nah. Uh, <laughs> let me just stop right there. Matthew, uh, before we go to the break, you know, everybody talks about the struggles of the black man, but if the black man got it bad on a Monday and a Tuesday, then the black woman got it bad all week. Who were some of the other Unsung black military heroes in the military during that time, particularly black women. Let's let's take a moment to educate people on, you know, just not only what was necessarily going on on the front lines with black men, but also with black women in any and all support capacities, if not combat.
3: So within the military, there were thousands of black women that participated in the Women's Army Corps. Uh, the largest group was a group called the 688th Central Postal Directory Battalion that was under the command of Major Charity Adams. And this group's job, once it got sent to England in 1944, was to distribute mail throughout the European theater, uh, which is actually a really difficult thing to do because you had troops moving all the time, these units were moving back and forth across uh, across France and Germany as the as war was progressing, and you had a lot of guys with common names. So they would be trying to determine which Bob Jones was receiving this mail. Or which uh, Tom Johnson was receiving this mail. But they developed these systems to get mail distributed throughout the European theater and ended up moving about 65,000 pieces of mail per day uh, throughout the European theater. It was really important for troop morale. Both black and white soldiers talked about the importance of receiving mail from home in terms of morale. Uh, But those black Mm -hmm. women had to face the kind of racism and sexism they would have encountered in the United States as well. And so, in terms of where they could stay when they were in England, they had to fight to get access to hotels, get to get access to the Red Cross uh, aid stations, and so every step for them w- was a battle within the military, but they, they um, performed an extremely important role uh, in, um, in distributing the mail throughout the European theatre. On the home front, there are more than a million Black Americans who participated in the defense industries, and six hundred thousand of them were Black women. And for them, the war Jeez. industries really opened up important uh, job opportunities that just weren't there before the war. Uh, by and large, Black women had opportunities outside the home only either in agricultural work or being domestic servants for white families. And so, a lot of these Black women war workers, essentially, they were like Black Rosie the Riveters. They said the war is what got them out of white people's kitchens. Um, and so, those again were were. Uh, month-by-month, week-by-week battles to get access to these really well-paying and important war jobs. So Black women's work was, was crucial to winning the war.
1: Well, after the break, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we've talked a little bit about what the military was like, and we've gotten a little bit of what it was like specifically for you. But I want to talk about what the military is doing right now to try and end some of this discrimination and what other veterans are dealing with once they're on the other side of their military service. This is Beyond the Scenes. We'll be right back. Beyond the scenes, we are back. We are talking about what it means to be black in the military, black man in the military, black and queer LGBTQIA plus in the military, what it means to be a black woman in the military. And we were talking, you know, during the break there, Richard, just a little bit. Also, not only how black women were dealing with so many issues and trying to help the military during that time, but it seems that a lot of the issues that affected men also intersected with them as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that a lot of people don't know are that Black women, under the policies of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, were disproportionately affected There's a new study that is uh, getting ready to be published that shows that uh, women broadly are in the last five years have been up to four to five times more likely to get a dishonorable discharge or other than honorable discharge, meaning they're getting into the military and leaving without access to their benefits. There's still a a wide variety of issue around sexual assault in the military, and the military hasn't done a good job of, of really forthrightly addressing that issue. And so you have all not only just discrimination kind of rearing its ugly head, but all of these other issues and ways in which uh, black women can and and are marginalized that are are often invisible to folks.
1: Yeah. Let's stay right there in that pocket, Matthew, because I've always joke isn't the right word, but I've always said on stage that, you know, something going wrong in the military because they got their own court and their own jail. What other job, you know, got their own jail? I'm like, damn, is everybody breaking the rules? <laughs> so how does the legacy of racism and white supremacy, how does that still haunt our military today?
3: Well, I think there's a through line in terms of how criminal justice works in the military, uh, how it's worked historically, and how it works in the present. In the World War Two time period, to pick up on what Richard was just saying, one of the ways that black Americans were treated unfairly was what they called blue discharges. Uh, these were written on blue paper, but they essentially kicked people out of the military without having to go through the court martial process uh, for black troops who they considered to be troublemakers. And so the two primary populations that received these blue discharges were uh, gay and lesbian troops at the time, uh, because that wasn't allowed during World War II, and then black troops, anyone who organized or or pushed back against the kind of racist treatment they were receiving on base would receive one of these discharges. And that was a a less than honorable discharge, which meant that they had no access to the benefits uh, that they had earned and, and worked for during the war. Fast-forward into the present, and a lot of those same issues remain with regards to how uh, military justice is carried out along lines of race. Um, I think this is where you see, as much as the military has progressed, and I think there have been significant uh, aspects of progress from the World War II era to the present, it's still an institution that has a lot of the existing racial prejudices of the nation that in many ways it can't not have those when you're bringing together this wide cross section of, of demographics, uh, race, gender, sexuality from all across the country. If you get people in power who have pre-existing racial biases, that's going to lead to disparate and uh, unequal treatment for uh, people of color in particular once they're in the military. And they get, you see it reflected in the kind of um, legal punishments and and um, court-martials and other uh, less than discharges that, that Black troops continue to get today.
1: We were talking at work about the NFL and Black coaches, right, and how that's a problem in terms of having more Black coaches means that there has to be changes at the top higher than the level of coach. So that's GM, team president, owner, or league officials, right? So when you talk about eliminating racism that's structural and institutional, how much of this falls on... People, let's just say at the Pentagon level, to stop like if you look at like say January 6th, right? Mm-hmm. January 6th, I think it was like over 20 people that were active military. Not like former one military. Third. One yeah. third. Yeah. yeah, not like <laughs> you got radicalized later after you left. No, yeah. you was just at base yesterday. I'll be right back, Lieutenant. I gotta run down to DC for some on January. 6th. I'll be right back. Like, how do you adjudicate that? How do you punish that? How do you regulate that when it's so ingrained, when you have monuments named after all of these Confederate generals? Like, how do you start? And I hear you breathing already. Like, how do you change any of this culture? Where does the solution even begin?
2: It's complex, right? Um, I think that where the focus of the project um, that I've been carrying out over the course of the last few years has been is looking at the history first, um, and so, you know, kind of focus almost exclusively on veteran affairs issues like these, the, the harms that have been done when it comes to the military itself. Like race is a factor from recruitment to retirement. And there are multifaceted prongs when you have conversations about how to address those things. Right. So let's just take recruitment, for instance. We know based off of a geospatial map study that was done on the city of San Diego, that the majority of recruitment that was happening in black neighborhoods were for service oriented Roles, right? Um in low skill, low low wage really roles. And they were recruiting officers from white affluent neighborhoods, right? So we haven't mm-hmm. d- been able to ext- extrapolate that study outward um, to see what, what's happening in other cities, but we can kind of take that as a model, right? We know that just within the military itself, it has a broken equal employment opportunity system, right? This, the, the ways in which folks can make complaint, complaints and adjudicate complaints without fear of retribution, the statistics show that folks don't trust that process, Trust folks don't trust that system, right? So you're being funneled into the military, off Oftentimes with only access to kind of uh, service oriented roles, you have uh, the academies, really, that uh, these military academies, which more of the, the top brass end up kind of being funneled through, uh, are, have a race issue really with recruitment um, and in the ways in which they target black populations to attend those schools. So that 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 ends up having impact thirty or forty years down the line when these people become the, the heads and leaders of the military. Um, and then you have a white nationalist mm. problem that the country, you know, the the, the, the Pentagon doesn't want to be, you know, forthright and honest about right um, and, and the ways in which they tackle it because. There is a very uncomfortable discourse around what does that mean around politics? Because what I what I found in ways in which people were being radicalized and I and I tell this this story because it's an important one. Like I served on a on a former Nazi based in Germany. Right. It was not uncommon to see people walking around with Mein Kampf and reading it like for leisure. Right. Just, Just white boys out in
1: the open, like like Sports Illustrated. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and there were folks that were just in, you know, and they
1: would say, "Oh, I'm just interested paperback. because well, not not I, like a book on I, tape, nothing, not like a Kindle." I mean, for all I know, they had
2: they had all those things, but yeah, bringing it to work and reading it, it was it was normal, right? Fast forward four years, I'm getting out. I, I, I'm going to work one day uh, shortly after getting out the military. I pull a pull up on a paper and I realized there was a, a gentleman. Who we'd gone to basic training at the same place at the same time. I never, I don't believe I've met this person, but um, we ended up being stationed at Baumholder, which is a very small base in Germany, at the same time in the same unit, deploying to Afghanistan at the same time, getting out of the military at the same time. You know, fast forward three years, he becomes a white nationalist, comes to New York to murder a black person, just a random black person, radicalized, right? And to me, that's when everything started to I started to connect the dots more that like, you know, the radicalization that's happening in the military conspiracy theories were rampant in the military. Like I literally would be talking to commanders and they'd be talking about like, oh, uh, FEMA camps are real. And like, you know, and these are people that are entrusted with thousands of, you know, the leadership of thousands of people, potentially hundreds Mm -hmm. of people. So, you know, it's just. Yeah. Radicalization in the, in the, in the, in the, in the army is really, I think the big issue, but I look at like something, someone like Bishop Garrison, he got appointed last year, uh, a, an appointment, the first of its kind to report directly to um, the the secretary of defense. And he lasted less than a year in that position, a black man who was appointed to oversee, uh, you know, uh, the, the issues around race, the issues around diversity and inclusion. And within a year he's being kind of pushed out. It, you know, I, I you know, it's, it's, there's no easy solution but there has to be a willingness to have the conversation and that's that's something that's continuously pushed off because race still plays a major role right a major role for folks and and they want they want to keep a racial hierarchy and there are folks in the military that that abide by that.
3: There's deep historical roots for this as well. Uh, so there were countless stories of black troops during World War II who saw white troops run up the Confederate flag either alongside or instead of the Stars and Stripes once they took over these towns in France. And you just have to stop and imagine like, what did that feel like? What did that what did that look like to these black troops to see their their fellow soldiers or their white countrymen praise the the Confederate flag? And, and they absolutely knew what they were doing. Right, both sides did. That everyone understood that that was a signal for slavery and for a racial hierarchy that was could be traced back to the to the Jim Crow South. Part of what was important about the military finally desegregating in 1948 is they recognized that racism and segregation made the military a less effective fighting force, that during the war, segregation was stupid. It, it made no, so, no sense <laughs> strategically, right? You were doing everything in duplicate. It was just like complicated. They were segregating blood from white and black blood donors, even though there's no scientific basis to do that it's not because of political correctness or anything else that led them to desegregate. It was due to intense political pressure from from black activists, but also due to the fact that military leaders finally identified that, you know, we can take better advantage of the, the manpower of the country if we actually are, are integrated, that they were turning away black Americans with PhDs, with language skills, with degrees from Harvard, because they, they didn't want to have black Americans serving in certain units. And so I think to, to Richard's point, there's been a lot of backtracking in the last couple of decades that one of the things that comes out of Vietnam is you have, once the, um, the military becomes an all-volunteer force, you start to see vastly more numbers of black Americans and Latinx Americans participating in the military. You see many more minorities in the military uh, in the, the past three decades. But you also see the development of a, a very intense and increasingly public white nationalist strain in the military. And it's hard for the military to have both those things coexist. You can't ask people of color to serve disproportionately to the percentage of the population while also still cultivating uh, and not doing anything to, to counteract an intense white nationalist thread in the military. So I think if there's any hope for where the military might go in the future. It's trying to recognize that it's it's really mission critical for for the military to to be a space where racism isn't part of the day-to-day culture, that you want this to be a space where, where all Americans who, who choose to serve can do so proudly.
2: I want to say one more thing. Uh, racism is a spectrum, right? You have white nationalists, but you also have the everyday person who might have racial biases, but the way, the, the way that they move, the way that they engage compounds over time and affects a Black... A black person's career potentially in the military right so Mm. when we have these conversations about racism it's often like it's it it kind of very easily goes to the white nationalist conversation when like the everyday racial bias and the, the 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 attempts to try to Intervene in that with education are being intervened, right? Like, or, or, or not being taken seriously. And I think what, what happened at West Point last year was a perfect example when there was a class being stood up to essentially kind of engage with the concepts of CR- uh, critical race theory. It ended up on the congressional floor, right, with like members <laughs> decrying that, like, how dare we try to, see, to, to teach the, the former leaders of, of our military about the history of race in this country and the systemic ways in which it shows up. And so anyway, that's one to put that in the conversation about racism, racism being a spectrum.
1: On the other side of your military career when you retire and we've kind of graced the surface a little bit, but let's dig in on this. What are some of the inequities and in the types of benefits black veterans have received throughout history. My uncle is an army veteran and God bless him. This man spent about the last five, six years trying to prove that he has what they don't think he has. And he keeps getting sent to every single VA doctor that ain't got an appointment. and ain't got, well, you had to get a second opinion, got to do this paperwork. It's just a long ass dance. And not only what are the inequities that black veterans have received throughout history, but what impact has that had on veterans' access to housing and education and healthcare and just just general economic opportunities.
3: Historically, it's had a huge impact. Um, So the GI Bill was perhaps the most important piece of legislation in our nation's history. It's what enabled a whole generation of of white veterans to come back and enter uh, the middle class to be able to raise themselves up and raise their families up because it provided access to low-interest VA-backed home mortgages, provided access to college tuition benefits, loans to be able to start businesses, and a range of health care benefits and other benefits as well. But the way that legislation was written, it was largely authored by Southern Democratic politicians who were segregationists. And so they made sure that that legislation was uh, distributed not at the federal level, but at the state and local level, which meant that these local um, VA officials could discriminate, discriminate once black veterans came into these local offices. And so you have countless stories from 1946, 47, of black veterans going to their local branches and just getting the runaround, either being denied outright or being steered into vocational programs. What they're trying to do is go to a four-year college. Uh, They're being told that they can't use benefits for certain, certain reasons. And in terms of mortgages, probably the largest portion of of the benefits, uh, all across the country, black veterans find it impossible to get mortgages to live in the majority of neighborhoods. It's true in New York and New Jersey, and it's true in California. That has a dire long-term impact in terms of the racial wealth gap. Uh, There's a group at Brandeis University called the Institute for Economic and Racial Equity that's been running some studies to try to calculate what the long-term impact of this is. And what they found is that uh, black veterans' benefits from the GI Bill for World War II vets was only worth about 40% of what white veterans got. And over a lifetime, that was about $100,000 per veteran. Now, you can imagine what that means in terms of what uh, black veterans from World War II could pass on to their their families, when you look at the what should be very upsetting numbers in terms of the racial wealth gap in the country, a huge part of that can be traced back to the GI Bill. And so historically, this was really a fulcrum point in terms of how the country either could have moved closer to racial equity in terms of wealth. The way their policy was written, we moved in the other direction. So the GI Bill opened up gaps between veterans that that shouldn't have been there based on their service.
2: Yeah. And to piggyback off that, I think we uh, Matthew and I had a discussion last week and. He had mentioned that and I never really thought about it, but it makes perfect sense because a lot of folks assume that, OK, well, they weren't able to go to white schools with the GI Bill, but there was not infrastructure at HPCs to absorb the number of black vets that were returning. And so what you had was not only this stripping of 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 generation of wealth that could be passed down through home loans, but also the disappearance of a professional class that could have arise from, you know, access to college education in math, for really for the first time. And I think that has a direct correlation to deindustrialization, what we see in inner cities um, throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s and urban plight. It has a direct correlation because that generational wealth compounded, the ability to, to be able to educate yourself out of circumstance compounded. Um, and then I, I like to start with like around around Vietnam, like, you know, go from World War II to Vietnam, the nation's first fully integrated war, and Black vets were disproportionately being kicked out of the military continuously. Over 100,000 of them um, kicked out without access to their benefits. We've been talking predominantly about the GI Bill, right, which is a huge social welfare program, very important. But disability compensation is an another avenue of income in the thousands of dollars, potentially a month, that folks are not getting access to. And we were able to prove that there was a statistically significant disparity with respect to the denial rates that Black vets were facing. And one of which were that over over a five-year period from 2015 to 2020, Black veterans were almost 30% less likely to get disability for something like PTSD. And that's just in the most recent conflict, right? So we're going to the same wars and and dealing with, like all the things that you just said, discrimination and, and, and lack of access to... To genuine opportunity. And that has a a psychological effect as well. But these things aren't being taken serious when you go to the, the VA to talk about, like, I have PTSD, and it might look different from a white vet. Or maybe it does look the same as a white vet, but I'm still being denied this disability um, compensation. And so the, the case that's getting prepared now is actually a gentleman who served in Vietnam by the name of Conley Monk, who I think is one of the most important black vets in modern American history. He served two tours of Vietnam, got kicked out his last month in his second tour. He went from the age of 19 to 21, Serving tours in Vietnam, uh, like mm-hmm. I said, he was from New Haven, and um, a white superior called him the N word. He got in a physical altercation. Forty years later, he did, still doesn't have access to his benefits. Five years ago, in 2015, he was able. Six years ago, he was able to win a landmark case with Yale yeah, that gave uh, anyone who had been discharged a dishonorable discharge or an other than honorable discharge um, who had. Uh, Post traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury access to their benefits. And what that means in real time is that they compensated him for three years of the back pay that they owed him, uh, but they still owe him from all the pay that he didn't get all the mm-hmm. way from 1971. Mm-hmm. Right. So now he is levying a suit against the VA and his brother is suing on behalf of their deceased father, who was a World War II veteran and didn't get access to the GI Bill. Because another thing that we don't talk about is uh, uh, service is also intergenerational. So you have the same families often being, you know, being stripped of access to these benefits and then it being compounded over time. And so, yeah.
1: Richard, you were fortunate in the sense that your mother took you in after your suicide attempt and was there to be an integral part in your growth and helping you out of the PTSD and helping you out of the depression and helping you back into the world of employment. There are a lot of veterans that do not have that type of care and concern within their family tree. How has the VA failed black veterans in the scope of just mental health, like at, at any point before your suicide attempt, did you ever feel like, well, maybe I should just go to the VA and then a voice in your head going, Nah, they ain't going to be able to do shit for me. Was there ever hesitancy Did you go to the VA, that you seek out mental health services mm-hmm. before the suicide attempt or was the attempt the first fissure, you know, in your stability at that time?
2: I did. Um, I didn't know that I had PTSD, but I I went to the VA. I sat down with a psychologist there and was basically told that I had something called adjustment disorder, which I I don't know what that is, but I've talked to people since. and They were like, well, that's a form of PTSD. But a lot of that's a a, a term that they basically use to say, oh, well, we can't really help. You don't have a lot of resources or whatever. I, I just felt sidelined. It took so much courage to try to go and actually have the conversation because, it, you know, People are pr- proud. I'm, I'm a proud person. And I didn't want to admit that I had something wrong, especially being a combat medic, because I got to see folks who were really messed up. Right. So in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm not a mess up as them, so I'm gonna be OK. I'm gonna go figure it out. But I, I went and mm-hmm. was dismissed and then found myself even in, in what led to my suicide attempt was when they started to, they gave me an antidepressant, which. In the in the long term, I found that I was bipolar, but they gave me an antidepressant that made it 10 times worse <laughs> and that which led to my attempt. So it was just like mismanagement oh kind of all around because I, the things that I was expressing and trying to make plain wasn't being taken seriously. I was just, you know, so... So yeah, uh, and I think by way of how the VA has failed, I mean, I think it has not wanted to address the fact that it has a race issue. There was a survey of VA employees about two or three years ago, and of them, it, it's like something upwards of seventy percent said that they dealt with racism or they saw discrimination on their on, in their everyday jobs, right? Of the of the employees that were actually surveyed, what does that mean for the black vets that have to actually go <laughs> and get? get get and get service there and a story that actually happened recently this last year there was a, a older black uh veteran that went to the VA was was basically seeking help for PTSD and they'd forgotten about him he was there for hours he ended up killing himself inside the VA right and so Come these on, are God. just kind of anecdotal conversations about just systemic failures because You know, our pain isn't seen as the same or what our experiences aren't as validated. There's not enough cultural competency within the VA. And I know there are efforts to try to change that, but there are actors just like there are actors um, that are entrenched within the Department of Defense that just don't see race as an issue or purposely just want to continue to have the disparities continue to to ravage. And if we hadn't done the study with Yale and put pressure on, I don't know if they would have even said, hey, we should address the fact that there's a 30 percent disparity with PTSD. I don't
1: know, Matthew. What role does the American public play in contributing positively into the lives of veterans? Because, like, because like we we know what we are in America, right? You know, we celebrate the veteran and we love that veteran. And then you, you go to the you go to the football game. Everybody give it up for the veteran. Look at that veteran over there sitting there enjoying the game, and we clap for that veteran. We pride ourselves on honoring folks who risk their lives on the battlefield. But throughout history, and we, and we know what's going on in the present day, but throughout history, what has been the experience of Black veterans returning home? So the experience
3: of Black World War II veterans returning home was that they were openly disrespected uh, in the communities they came back to. They were on the wrong side of the GI Bill policy, by and large. Uh, they were openly harassed by a lot of white communities. The, their stories of black veterans, as soon as they got back on, on ships, being directed white veterans this way, Negro veterans that way, and oftentimes they didn't use the polite term there, right? There's... It, Hearing racial epithets as soon as they get off, as soon as they get off a boat, um, they're being directed to not um, march their troops through white towns. They have to take a circuitous path that only goes through through black towns. And there's at least a dozen um, black World War II veterans who were murdered. Some also wearing their military uniforms, because too many white citizens thought that these black veterans were going to be leaders in the civil rights movement after the war. And and black veterans Mm -hmm. were. They were. They came back and they demanded equal rights. They demanded the kind of freedom and democracy they're fighting for abroad. But the kind of treatment these black veterans received was was horrific, and it was not fitting of their service. I think thinking of the present, what does it mean for the American public to actually support veterans and troops is to think about what it means to support individual veterans and troops. That I think too often you find yourself at a sporting event, everyone will clap for the veterans when they stand up, which is great in theory, but then when push comes to shove and money is be allocated to the VA or money is being allocated to support the actual lives of, of veterans to make sure that they have the resources they need to, to re-enter American society and to be able to <clears throat> thrive professionally, that's where we need the American public to stand up. Uh, it's not enough to say that one supports the troops or one um, supports veterans at a, a sporting event. You're kind of generically support, supporting the category then. What you need to do is support the actual living people in your communities who have served this country.
1: After the break, I wanna talk solutions and Richard, I wanna dig a little bit more into your program and what you were doing to help the veterans, as my uncle calls it, veterans. That's I think that's how black people say it, vet V E T C H veterans. <laughs> this is beyond the scenes. We'll be right back. I want to end with a couple questions about what we can do, you know with regards to solutions. And Richard, you have spent a lot of time sitting and building out this project that you've talked about a couple. You've already mentioned it a couple times, but let's really peel back the layers on it. You know, it's called the Black Veterans Project, with everything you've laid out today in terms of the systemic issues within it for enlisted officers and the issues that retired officers deal with are you optimistic about seeing progress around the issues of racial equity within the military? Because, you know, you'll start a project, be like, I'm going to solve the problem. And then you look at the problem, you'd be like, whoo, shit.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, could, I wouldn't be doing this as if I didn't feel like we could have an impact. I think I look at what we've done over the last four years. It really started with the idea that you know, when I was Googling Black Vet, nothing really showed up except a few miscellaneous organizations of, of whom we've begun to collaborate with some of them. A lot of older Black Vet. or Black Vets have been organizing forever, right? There are Black Vet organizations as old as, out of World War One, right? I got to go to an old American Legion that's a, tr- a historically Black American Legion. And they were founded by returning Black GIs who didn't have anywhere else to go. And they formed community. And they ended up doing amazing things. Um, But my generation is what understands the Internet. Right. And so when I when I started the project, I realized that, like, their history just wasn't being told and there wasn't enough coverage. So I think, you know, we've been part and parcel to the proliferation of a lot of storytelling around specifically with the press, like working with the press and edifying journalists and and making sure that folks are are talking about this in the digital sphere around like just, just historical contributions, but also like the inequities. Just making sure that the inequities aren't lost. It's very easy to to, to put up a photo of the Tuskegee Airmen and say, oh, that's enough. But then you're not talking about how some of those men were obstructed from the GI Bill and the you know, compounding generational impact, right? So I just mm-hmm. want to, to kind of force a, a more rounded conversation. Um, and then, you know, what, what we've been able to glean by way of data uh, and then kind of connecting researchers and folks that are really interested in reparations for Black vets, because that's really at the heart of the Ooh. work that we've been doing, is that we, I, I believe, and we believe that... Uh, veterans are the best position to to push forward black vets are the best position to push forward a conversation about reparations in this country especially because we don't have to go all the way back to slavery we can talk about something that was done in the last hundred years let alone the last 50 to 60 years um that has been affecting uh black black veterans but also when we talk about black vets we're also talking about black families black the black community right they're they're not they're not mutually exclusive so so yeah
1: So then to that point, Matthew, can we can we legislate it? Is is there anything being done on a policy level to combat racism within the ranks of the military? Because I always feel like the military, like you have the federal government, in my opinion, you have the federal government and then you have the military. And like the military is always treated as this weird annexed. 51st state, if you will, that has their own jail, their own court, their own funding, their own little network of hospitals and everything. How can DC better legislate stuff, you know, even beyond reparations? Is that even happening right now?
3: Yeah, let me answer it in two ways. So, on the sort of military side, absolutely. I mean, theoretically, The military is a taxpayer funded institution and it should be accountable to the kind of treatment that Americans who serve their country are receiving. Um, I think the question of when The military observes racism happening, um, whether it's those explicit acts of racism or it's the kind of day-to-day perpetuation of racism that harms uh, black troops and people of color in the military and prevents them from having long-sustained beneficial careers. Those are things that the military can hold troops to account for. Uh, That's going to take work. It's going to take action. It's going to take leadership. uh, But the military is nothing if it's not a a structured organization. It's a a hierarchical organization. So if military leaders say that this is going to happen and they hold their subordinates to account, that is something that can change if the American public demands it to change. On the other piece, picking up um, what Richard was saying about um, uh, policy legislation, there was legislation that was introduced last year called the GI Bill Restoration Act that would go a long way towards addressing the wrong of the GI Bill and the racial discrimination that happened there. It was introduced on Veterans Day in 2021, just last year, uh, by Seth Moulton and James Claiborne and the House of Representatives and by uh, Raphael Warnock in, in the Senate, What that legislation would do is it would provide uh, those GI Bill benefits to the descendants of Black World War II veterans who had been denied those benefits. So it would enable them to be able to use it for home loans or for college tuition. Um, That's a small piece of a much larger conversation about reparations. But reparations is about repair. It's both a financial aspect and trying to make right the kind of benefits that these Black veterans should have received. But also, it's about acknowledging that this was wrong. This was something that Black veterans had earned through their service in World War II that had been denied to them. And so, just the uh, possibility of passing legislation beyond the very important financial aspect would do justice to the, the service of these Black veterans and help to repair that wrong.
1: I want to end optimistically. What can we, the regular people of the world, do to properly honor and support veterans other than letting them board first on the airplane and giving them 55 cent coffee at fast food establishments? Because we all know That's what fixes all of these issues, Hmm. being able to get on the plane first. What else (laughs) can we do? Richard, I'll start with you.
2: There are abundance of policies that have been pushed forward to try to address the issue of race in the military. But how can the American public um, honor? I think, one, it's edifying themselves on um, the necessity of ensuring that a piece of legislation like the GI Bill Restoration Act can actually do some level of repair. Um, they have uh, intent to try to break that bill up, to try to pass components of it next year, specifically the housing provision in the 118th Congress, which would give, quite literally, potentially millions of African-Americans access to zero VA-backed home loans. But we already know that there is still uh, rampant discrimination with respect to Black folks' access to home loans, right? We uh, uh, need, Let alone home appraisals and and all these other things. So what is the private sector doing also to just ensure that the, the landscape is set so that this reparations can potentially be instituted in a way that can actually have an impact. Because as it stands now, we might pass this bill by the grace of God, and the 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 impact that it could have had is undermined by the lack of public awareness um, and also a lack of real due diligence with respect to how we actually get the, this benefit in the hands of the families that have been affected. Because it's also an invisible wound, right? And I'll say this mm-hmm. as, as the last part. It's like one, and, and engaging with a lot of journalists, specifically around uh, World War II and the harms of the, and access to the GI Bill, is that a lot of families don't even know that this happened to them, right? Or can't even fully articulate it. And you have a whole generation that wow. very, very close to not being with us anymore, right? But their families certainly bear the scars, Economically, at least, of, of in access to the GI Bill. Um, so, I think the biggest thing that 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 uh, that the American public can do is is educate themselves, engage with the history, buy half American, read a, 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 a read a book. Honestly, I, I think that, that that is like the the best way so that we're we're not engaging in, in ignorant based discourse. Matthew,
3: how do we support? I'm a historian, so I'll say the same thing I say to my students, that the stories we tell about the past matter. And so I think a first starting point is really reckoning honestly with the history of our country, particularly when it comes to the military, that Black Americans, people of color, have served this country proudly throughout our nation's history. Uh, They've been deeply, deeply patriotic, but that service hasn't always been repaid. And so I think a starting point is recognizing that veterans have been treated unequally throughout American history, particularly with the story about World War II. I think in the present, I think it's important to talk about veterans as actual living people, um, I think we're at a point right now in our country where the military is drawn from about 1% of the entire U.S. population. So you have the 1% who serves and the 99% of everyone else. And we've fallen into this trap where veterans are are treated as heroes, as a sort of generic category, but then too often ignored as individuals, particularly for black veterans and, and veterans of color. That mm-hmm. is a disservice to veterans and also to the larger American public. I think as citizens who are not in the military or are not veterans, we have to um, treat veterans as sort of actual living and breathing people who deserve uh, the benefits that they earned and deserve um, to be uh, welcomed back into American communities and given all the support they need to find careers, find professional pathways uh, that do justice to the important work they did within the military.
1: Well, I can't thank you all enough for this wonderful, wonderful conversation. I appreciate you all for going beyond the scenes with me today. That's all the time we have. Thank you to our guests, Richard and Matthew. And be sure to check out Matthew's new book, Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Thank you both. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Play my theme music. Listen to The Daily Show, Beyond the Scenes, on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or
0: wherever you get your
1: podcasts.